if I'm going to become an academic, how can I bear it? And then if I'm not going to be an academic, how can I bear it? So I sort of ended up with the same question. How can I bear it? And I think the capacity to bear it comes back to that sense of what does it mean? Why does it matter? How does it matter? But for me critically is how can it matter for others as well? Hello, and welcome to the Humanists at Work podcast on the value of the humanities PhD. My name is Beth Green. I'm the Research Communications Manager at the University of California Humanities Research Institute. I have a PhD in history from UCLA, and I've spent the past year thinking about this term value. It's a word we hear a lot when we talk about the humanities PhD. As tenure-track jobs have gotten more and more scarce, we've been assured that our degrees have value well beyond the academy. After all, humanists can pursue a range of fulfilling careers in an economy reliant on an educated workforce. But what does it really mean to say that a humanities PhD has value outside the tenure track? How do these values fit in with why we got a humanities PhD in the first place? And what does the word value even mean? Etymologically, the word is magical. This is David Peterson. Hi, my name is David Peterson. I'm an associate professor in the anthropology department at UC San Diego. The concept of value features prominently in David's work, and he says that the term value is popping up more and more in scholarship and in the world. For him, the word is powerful because it allows people to speak about multiple kinds of value and to go back and forth between the vernacular concept of value, meaning monetary worth, to a broader sense of values, which is a relatively recent use of the word. Here he is again. The easy use of the term is, well, value is what something is worth. And one way that we measure what something is worth is by its price. And then you can sort of say, well, but for lots of people, there's other ways of evaluating what something is worth. And so the word value lets one talk about that and suggests that there's kind of a plurality of ways of thinking about relationships, thinking about the world, thinking about objects in the world. And the task then is to sort of tally up this plurality. But that's why it's compelling in the kind of everyday usage. We'll come back to David later, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. If we take the first concept of value, meaning monetary worth, then what we're really talking about is economic value. But how do you go about defining the economic value of a degree? For that, I asked Sandy Baum. I'm Sandy Baum. I'm a higher education economist. I'm a fellow at the Urban Institute. For 16 years, I have been co-authoring the College Board's annual reports on trends in student aid and trends in college pricing, as well as their report on education pays, the benefits of higher education for individuals and society. So what is the economic value of a degree? Calculating the economic value of a degree is not simple. People throw around some broad generalizations that might be misleading. The economic value, first of all, is not the whole value. That's really important. There's a lot of value to education that doesn't get reflected in dollars and cents, and we don't want to overestimate the dollars and cents, but they are nevertheless important. The first thing is that there is economic value of a degree both for the individuals participating in higher education and for society as a whole. Economic value for society can take on a variety of different forms. People with higher levels of education are more likely to vote, to be civically engaged, to volunteer, to spend time with their children in ways that makes their children ready for school and to succeed more. And the list goes on. 
For the individual, however, the economic value of a degree is most often calculated as higher earnings for the degree holder. For humanities PhDs, however, the economic connection is not as clear. Part of the problem is that measuring the earnings premia for specific disciplines is really hard because comprehensive data is hard to find. In the United States, surveys that collect this kind of data rely on a pretty small percentage of the population, which only shrinks as we segment by degree level and discipline. What studies we do have are not particularly auspicious. One study from the UK suggests that there is little to no earnings premia between master's and doctoral degree holders, particularly in disciplines in languages, arts, and the social sciences. Another Canadian study suggests that the economic returns on the PhD are modest, citing the lost earnings PhDs accrue while pursuing their degree and the low starting salaries for PhD holders. Further, we have to account for the fact that most humanities PhD graduates would probably be just fine economically, regardless of whether or not they receive their doctorate. This is how Sandy explains it. Elite colleges tend to produce more people who go to PhD programs. So that means that the people who graduate from those colleges have characteristics, their family background, their academic preparation, et cetera, that meant that they were probably going to earn more than average anyway. So you don't want to attribute all of the earnings of people who have PhDs from Harvard to the fact that they got a PhD at Harvard, because if you had sent them out without that degree, they probably would have earned more than average people anyway. And it's not just Harvard graduates who enter PhD programs at an economic advantage. According to the survey of earned doctorates, the parents of humanities PhDs are the most educated of all of the disciplines. In 2015, 42.8% of humanities and arts PhDs reported that their father had an advanced degree, and 32% reported that their mother did. But let's face it, most people don't choose to get a humanities PhD because they think they'll strike it rich. So why do we do it? Here's Sandy again. There's a huge consumption element to that. It is really interesting to go to graduate school in history. And so it's not an irrational choice, but if we're talking about the payoff to a graduate degree in history, the question is, you know, how do we want to measure that? No one goes to graduate school in history because they think they're going to make higher earnings than they would with any other choice. That's not what people are trying to do. So I don't think it's right to evaluate it that way. But I think making a decision about where do you want to end up and is this the best way to invest in yourself is a challenging decision. Of course, many graduate students are going to school because they want to become professors. But in the absence of stable faculty positions, many higher education institutions and organizations have focused their efforts on positioning PhD graduates to pursue high-level positions of any sort. This is Peter Bansell, faculty member at Western Sydney University in Australia and reviewing a page on his university's website that featured PhDs and careers outside of academia, he noticed a focus on senior positions in a variety of industries, from business to government to the nonprofit sector. So I really love this framing of the seniority of the postgraduate entering the labour market, that there is some benefit to have spent this long period of time studying because you're going to enter at some senior level. I think that what we're witnessing across a whole range of labour markets and especially higher education labour markets is it's hard to find work. There aren't as many jobs. Tenure is hard to find. There's a lot of casual contract, part-time work, often at much lower levels. So this fantasy of the senior graduate who is going to participate in this amazing career doesn't seem to eventuate and certainly doesn't seem to eventuate anytime soon after graduation. 
So there's a deferral of the expression of the value of the doctorate because there's a liminal period in what are my opportunities, where can I work, what will I do, and what meaning will that have for me or for anyone else. Let's take a step back from the economic argument for now. As Sandy mentioned, economic value is not the only way to measure the value of a PhD. For another perspective, we went to Jacqueline Eccles at the School of Education at UC Irvine. Here she is introducing herself. Jacqueline Eccles. I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine. I'm a motivational psychologist, so I study why people do what they do. Jacqueline's work centers around the expectancy value theory. So the expectancy value theory is a classic theory within psychology. In its purest sense, it argues that people do things if they think they can succeed, hence the expectancy part, and if they value doing it, which is the value component. To expand on this theory, Jacqueline and her colleagues developed what they called the subjective task value. And we argued that people do things because it has value to them. And that value can come from many aspects of the task. So it can come from the fact the task is fun. This is often referred to as intrinsic motivation, that you do it because you like doing it. It can come from the fact that the task furthers your short and long-term goals. That's often referred to as extrinsic motivation. Dollars can be one of the things you do it for. So you pick this career because you think you'll make a lot of money at it. People also do things because of what I call attainment value, which really has to do with a person's identity. This has to do with the extent to which the task provides them an opportunity to be the kind of person they want to be at a very core, deep level. So that's why I link it to identity and identity politics. So a person would do something because it proves to themselves and to others that they are a kind person or a wise person or a smart person or an educated person so that they have goals about who they think they are and who they would like to be. And of course, the way you enact those is through the activities that you do, the tasks that you do. So tasks can have value because they coincide well with your personal identity, or you avoid tasks that in fact are inconsistent with your identity. For Jacqueline, those three values, intrinsic, extrinsic, and attainment, contribute to the positive motivations of expectancy value theory. But she notes that every task that you do also has a cost. Costs can be defined in terms of emotional cost, physical cost, health costs, time costs. And I think time costs are the ones that often get forgotten, that people only have so much time and so much energy, so any decision to take on one task means they won't have time to do another task, another activity. Now, how this relates to education, of course, is that any educational endeavor is a task. Whether it's a single course or a single test or a single book you're going to read, all of those I conceptualize as these kinds of tasks that people have to take on. And they're unique in that they are tasks that take a lot of time. So education, choosing to major in something or get a PhD in something is a very big time commitment. So determining whether getting a PhD has value for an individual involves deciding whether the positive motivations for earning a PhD outweigh what the costs would be. And graduate students are constantly evaluating whether what they're getting outweighs the cost of getting it. But what do they think they're getting? Many of us go to graduate school because we want to answer questions or follow an intellectual passion. 
But we also need to know that when we leave, some of what we've done will be reflected in a job offer. So what is the point of a PhD? Well, if you think back historically to what was the point of the PhD, it was a way of refining a person's educational credentials. It wasn't about getting a job. Because most of the people who went on and got PhDs came from well-to-do families, money was not an issue. So this wasn't the way to get the best-paying job. And then we've moved into the 20th century, we've become modernized, and educational credentials are much more linked to occupational outcomes than they are to intellectual betterment. So the humanities are the ones where the link to jobs is less clear. So it's not so obvious if you're an English major what your job is going to be. Those career trajectories are far more based on things that are outside of a person's control than becoming an engineer. Eccles argues that we need to have two key conversations. One about the value of PhDs that goes beyond the economic, and another about where PhDs end up when they graduate. And I think to the extent that they can make those two conversations easier, they will both give permission to follow your passion and reduce the perceived cost of doing it. And that's what I think is nice about the subjective task value idea, is that you have to take into account all of these components. There are costs. And to tell somebody there aren't, or because you're concerned about that, you're a lesser person because you're weighting a materialistic goal as more important than your intellectual passion, is not helpful. What you've got to take into account is these are people's real lives. And they are making incredibly important decisions. So as graduate students and PhDs, we have all decided that the value we get from the degree outweighs the cost. But once we leave academia, particularly when we're seeking careers beyond post-secondary teaching, how do we continue to incorporate the work that we valued in graduate school into our everyday lives? One of the things that I find really hard to articulate and which other PhD graduates I talk to find hard to articulate is the labour that goes into being a PhD graduate. The phenomenal intellectual, physical, emotional, psychic labour of staying with that thing year in, year out, being exposed, being vulnerable. The work that goes into that is phenomenal. And the only thing that makes that work, from my point of view, bearable is some belief in the value of it some belief that there is something that is worth the effort. So then to be in a situation where you're asked to give up that thing that made it doable to do something else by being a pretend academic because we can't give you a real job or by being employed in an industry where they have got no idea of what you've done, no particular respect for what you went through and only limited interest in what you can do as a graduate because of how you can value add to an organisation. I think these are really hard things to negotiate. Now's a good time for us to return to David, who's been working on this concept of value as it relates to an entire system of relations. David's theory of value centres on the Marxist concept of the objectification of abstract labour via the commodity through its price. This process is inherently relational and circulatory, and for David, it's a way of understanding capitalism as a whole. Everything that we do, every occupation we're in, every relationship or social connection we have takes place in a system that constantly supports this one process in which labor is objectified through a commodity and sold for a price. This value tendency 
pulls out this one quality, this most abstract quality of life, and that's what matters. But that's predicated on that there even is something called labor. So it's an incredible configuration <laughs> to be held in place. You need people working and all that goes into that. I mean, imagine a work complex, say, of Southern California. Everybody doing what they do for their wage in Southern California. Imagine that whole. And when all the various products that come out of all that effort can actually be bought and sold in a market, there must be something in all of those products that's being referred to. And what's being referred to every time they're bought and sold is this abstract dimension. All of the other concrete personal social dimensions, they become invisible as soon as the commodity exchanges for price. And that's this value has a representational proclivity, that the only thing that matters is some generic abstract quality across all of this effort. And this approach for it to be in place is an incredible orchestration and social outcome. For David, this theory helps you to see that you cannot escape this system but you can work to change it. Viewing things this way allows you to see your part in this whole and figure out what you want your role to be. For me, that's exciting because it helps you see the whole and the whole in process and the cracks that come and go. And yet you recognize there's really no outside place either. In other words, the cracks are internal to it. If the value analysis allows you to get into that, see capitalism that way, that then can help you see that your wage or your salary or your tenured position, you can see where that fits in the overall whole. And then you have to ask, you know, what's your relationship to this overall whole? Do you want to spend your life making it function better <laughs> for the relatively small group that's amassing tremendous wealth? Or do you want to kind of, you know, try to change it? So if we're all inside the system, that locates value in this very narrow sense, with very narrow goals. Maybe one role of the humanities is to complicate that. David sees this as a potential option. One step would be to simply say, to what extent does academic knowledge production in the humanities contribute to this value representational tendency? And to what extent does it push against it? But it's not so simple. For David, there's all kinds of knowledge produced in academia that doesn't necessarily challenge the system. There's a lot of scientific work that has a direct connection to markets and to patents. There's work that serves a particular discipline or that relates directly to some kind of government need. And then there's one other place in this giant mix, and it ebbs and flows, and that is critical knowledge production, where you're actually turning back on your own traditions, your own habits, and holding them up for real scrutiny. And there's sometimes a lot of space for that. I think there's less space now than certainly in my lifetime. And also each discipline tends to have more or less space for that. I think the upside of the humanities right now is that there's actually tremendous space for critical knowledge production. And some of my colleagues in literature, I think of them as some of the most creative, critical thinkers. Peter agrees. Here's how he describes it. It's people in the humanities that actually have the capacity to help us reclaim the humanity that years of economic rationalism, neoliberalism, neoconservatism have stripped out because the human is not important. 
in that political paradigm. It's the economic that is important. So the human is only important as homo economicus. Well, I'm not interested in homo economicus as the person of the future. I'm interested in this collective affective ensembles of people that form and merge and disappear and dissipate and grow and shrink who are engaged in the everyday moments and everyday practices of making a difference. So if some of the value of the humanities PhD lies in our ability to produce critical knowledge and to push against the reductivist capitalist notion of value, what does this mean for humanities PhDs who find themselves outside of the academy? And what does this mean for a university that is increasingly interested in only those aspects of degrees and of knowledge that can be measured? For Peter, the answer lies in the concept of intimate publics. This concept, which came from Lauren Berlant's book, Cruel Optimism, describes communities in which people offer support, tones of suffering humor, and cheerleading. In her words, in an intimate public, one senses that matters of survival are at stake, and that collective mediation through narration and audition might provide some routes out of the impasse and struggle of the present. I want to find myself in relation to others, where there can be an exchange of value, of affect, of what matters, that actually contributes to our own sense that we can survive the times that we are in and survive them well and survive them collectively. And I think that this is a significant attempt to find what I would call the heart of what matters to us in the places where we find ourselves and connect that to and with others as a project of becoming and as a project of possibility that is about our mutual survival based on our mutual vulnerability, which speaks against the dominant idea that we are senior experts who are rational and only practical, only doing things that can be written down, measured, put on form, ticked, etc. Inherent in this is the idea of abandoning traditional, outdated notions of what an academic is, inside and outside of the academy. Peter describes this process as unbecoming academic. So this idea of unbecoming, I'm finding really generative. And I'm playing here with unbecoming in two senses. Unbecoming hyphenated as becoming not academic, being other than academic. But I'm also thinking of unbecoming as unbecoming, as in not appropriate, out of place. So the unbecoming as somebody who can say, well, I know I have performance indicators and I will do my best to meet them, but I won't do them on my own. I'll do them through collegial activity. I'll co-author papers. In a sense, that to the institution looks like we're perfectly academic, we're productive, etc. But the process through which we go through that is unbecoming. It's about critiquing our position in the academy. It's about resisting the notion that we are individuals, that we are experts, etc. And it's about finding these intimate publics through which we can re-engage with each other to recover the value of what matters to us, independent of what the institution says. So in resisting that construction of autonomy and expertise and finding ways of making our own life viable for ourselves, I think that's an unbecoming. We are still becoming academic, but what we're trying to do is become academic in a different way, in a way that is an excess 
of what the institutional suggests we should be becoming. So there's the unbecoming academic by resisting, and then there's the unbecoming academic, which means finding a space for oneself at the edges of the academy, outside the academy. And I think that's harder because what I think it calls us to do is recalibrate moment to moment who we think we are and what we think we're doing, to let go of that thing in becoming academic that we are passionately attached to. So often, we're told that unbecoming academic involves drafting a resume and deconstructing our PhD into measurable, transferable skills. Of leaving aside passion for critical knowledge production so that we might re-articulate our degree into skills like oral and written communication and working on a deadline. In practical terms, this is an important step in finding a career, particularly outside of academia. But we should not deconstruct the academic degree to the point where it no longer reflects that knowledge, that thing that we are so passionate about producing. This is the challenge, I think, for us to hold to what value we place on what we know and what we do and how we feel, and don't capitulate to the imperatives of particular labour markets, but that once we're in these labour markets, through pragmatic engagement with others, we gradually suffuse what we do, how we perform and embody ourselves, how we approach problems, how we engage with others, with the things that really matter to us. Because I think otherwise we lose what matters and things that have never mattered to us become the things that drive us on a day-to-day basis. Too often, students feel that to be practical, they are not allowed to admit that they are doing something because they are passionate about it. And this isn't surprising. This is something that is deeply embedded in our system of education. The whole shift to emphasis on grades essentially has taken all the way through K-12 to out of the focus on love of learning. So in part, what we're talking about is how do you get people to know what their intellectual passion is and to value that. Well, we start at a very young age telling them grades are what matter and intellectual passion is not what matters. They're lucky if their intellectual passion happens to match onto reading, writing, or arithmetic. If it's music, they're not going to get it supported in the schools. If it's art, they're not going to get it supported in the schools. If it's humanities in the broader sense, when do they get exposed to philosophy? When do they get exposed to logic? This all comes much, much later, and we do a lot to essentially tell them your intellectual passion is really irrelevant. So it's not surprising that by the time they get to the PhD level, they're already thinking about why would I do this and what is the cost of it? Because we've actually sensitized them to that from the time they were in the first grade. Of course, pursuing things that have meaning to us wherever we find ourselves also means finding a job. How can we do this while still holding fast to who we are and who we want to be? If we can articulate all those skills, why would we articulate them and what for? And so, I don't want to reduce a PhD to those skills, but I am a pragmatist. So I think that we need to find new stories about ourselves so that we can say very quickly, I have all these skills. I've done a PhD. I did this. I did that. I did this research. I conducted this. I wrote this. That we can say that. But then we articulate what more we are than that. And we need to find a way to do that that makes sense to the people that we're talking to 
so that we use the graduate research skills as the foundation for elaborating a highly specific story about our own values and the value that we can bring. That we come to be understood as people who are alive in the world and want to participate in that world in ways that escape narrow thinking. Now, to know when to do that and how to do that is an art of the self. But if we from the humanities cannot find an art of self, then there's no hope for anybody. I'm gonna throw another ill-defined career buzzword at you, happiness. Often, career diversity advocates try to tell us that we can be happy in careers outside of academia without really defining what that happiness means. Peter has a better way. Let's take their impoverished idea of happiness and re-articulate it as a collective pleasure and a collective possibility of making a difference where we are, whether it's in a workplace or in a community organisation, around an idea, whatever it is. And I think it's not a hard story to sell. Finding the right way to tell the story, I think, is, is a challenge, but I think when you find it, it's not hard to sell. People want to hear that things can be different, that things can be better. So let's work together to find a new story of ourselves and our degrees. And the next time that we talk about the value of a PhD, maybe we'll have a better sense of what that means for us. Thanks for listening.